world as we know it. Um, it, it seems like God's just been kind of having fun for me. Can I put it that way? Um, like it just keeps kind of throwing out these little uh, sizzling moments kind of related to the, the topic that we're looking at here this, uh, over these weeks. Um, uh, two weeks ago, a week ago Saturday, it was the earthquake in Banff. Uh, Monday night, I don't know if you saw it or if you saw the news clip, this enormous meteor, I got a photo here for you, uh, this enormous meteor that uh, came in, you saw it over Alberta, apparently they even saw it in uh, Montana. Uh, is it the end of the world? Uh, the sky is falling? Is it, you know, is that what, and Jesus said, no, we, we were talked about that last Sunday. Um, the end has begun, uh, but don't be overstressed about wars and rumors of wars and, and famines and earthquakes. Um, these things, he said, would continue and don't, uh, he's encouraged us to just not get our tail in a knot and go off in kind of crazy directions when uh, challenging things like that start to happen. Um, but we want to know, uh, if the end has begun, what are the signs of the end of the end? Um, and um, and some have, so the doomsday clock, maybe you're familiar with this, um, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists uh, established this, and it's, a, it's supposed to be measuring sort of the signs of impending nuclear disaster is the, the intent. Albert Einstein was part of the group that started it in 1948, and initially they were tracking kind of, you know, scientific developments that were adding to the threat of world annihilation. Um, more recent years, they added social factors and political factors that lead to instability. So in, in their estimation, so January they sounded the alarm, uh, in their estimation we'd move 20 seconds closer to the annihilation, the complete annihilation of the planet, 100, 100 minutes uh, to midnight. That's their estimate, estimation, whatever you make of it. Uh, the, the point is just that this is a conversation that continues on for us. When? G Jesus will return uh, every eye will see him, the scriptures tell us. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But when? Uh, and Jesus' disciples wanted to know this too. And, and so we looked at the question they asked at the beginning of the Olivet Discourse, the fifth of five sort of sermons, if you will, that Jesus presents in the Gospel of Matthew. And, and we looked at the question that the disciples asked last Sunday. It was the middle of that first holy week. Uh, so Sunday, uh, Jesus had made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And Monday, he returned to the city to teach in the temple. Tuesday, he returned to the city to teach in the temple. Each time he returned, the conflict with the, the Jewish leaders uh, grew more intense. And, and now it's Tuesday evening, Matthew chapter 24, and they're leaving the city on their way back to Bethany to, to stay overnight with Lazarus and Martha and Mary and they stop on the slopes of the Mount of Olives uh, overlooking the Kidron Valley, overlooking the city of Jerusalem and, the, and the, the, uh, the temple itself and they have this conversation. Jesus brings this teaching to his disciples. He had just on the way out of the city prophesied that the temple would be destroyed and so the disciples are like, when is this gonna happen? Uh, and his response to them isn't quite what we would have expected. His response is, watch out, don't be deceived. Uh, we looked at his words last, uh, last Sunday as he says, uh, watch out for tricks and fears and haters and falls. But know that the mission of, of taking the gospel to the whole world will succeed. And we can kind of look back and say, okay, those are kind of signs that this thing is on course, tricks 
and fears, haters, and falls, but the mission continues, the gospel going to the whole world. That takes us up to Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. And this morning we, we then turn to verse 15, where Jesus continues and he says this. So, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. And most of us scratch our heads and say, I don't understand. <laughs> Right? It's like, um, what does the desolation of smog have to do with anything? Uh, right? Isn't that the last time you looked up the word desolation? You were wondering what theater the second movie in the Hobbit trilogy uh, was going to be playing and what time you could get a ticket. Uh, if, if, you, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, J.R. Tolkien, The Hobbit, was divided into the three movies. The middle one's called The Desolation of Smog, which describes the destruction of this dragon that's part of the storyline. Desolation, we gotta add a word to our vocabulary here apparently. Um, this is the abomination of desolation. Uh, it's an event that God spoke about initially through the Old Testament prophet Daniel. Let, let's just parse it out a little bit, okay? Abomination, something irreverent, loathsome, hateful. Desolation, the state of complete misery and devastation. So this is an irreverent, loathsome, hateful event that causes misery and, and devastation. The, abs- the, the abomination of desolation, we're gonna call this kind of first brick in a little stack we'll maybe make next week, we're gonna call it the Great Tribulation. This is tribulation, this is distress that Jesus is describing here in verse 15. But let's, let's kind of, what is it that he's referencing as he talks about the Old Testament prophet Daniel? Let me just read one of three passages where Daniel talks about this abomination of desolation. Um, Daniel chapter nine, verse 26. Here's what Daniel writes there. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed. Okay, well there's something that sounds a little familiar. Appearing to have accomplished nothing. Hmm. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. We're gonna talk about that in a moment, it happened. And the end will come with a flood and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. Okay, that sounds like Jesus last week, right? The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. That's that's where, if you've heard the idea of seven years of tribulation, uh, this is where that comes from. This is where the idea of that comes from. Uh, We'll talk a little more about that next week. Um, A period of one set of seven, but after half this time he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings and as a climax to all his terrible deeds he will set up, here it is, a sacrilegious object that causes desecration. This is the NLT, New Living Translation, the uh, NIV, the abomination of desolation, ESV, King James, NASB, that's how they translate it. A sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. So there you go, now you fully understand, okay? 
So, so the second half of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, of the Old Testament prophet um, is what's called apocalyptic literature. It was just kind of coming into its own 600 BC, 600 years before the coming of Jesus. And it's, it's language that uses grand images and signs and symbols, and it's challenging to understand what it is that he's talking about. I, I sometimes have likened it to uh, the art of an abstract painter. What does that mean? Mm, well, hmm. uh, or, or a little bit like uh, uh, the soloist uh, in a jazz music ensemble. Uh, what you, to the uninitiated, it's just noise. Uh, to the informed, it can be very beautiful, but, but it's not immediately obvious what's going on here. So that's the second half of the book of Daniel. Now, of course, the first half of the book of Daniel tells the account of how Daniel and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, were taken in captivity from Jerusalem. They're of noble bloodline in uh, the Jewish noble families, and they're taken off in captivity to Babylon, 605 BC, and uh, are and, and there they're invited to begin to serve the king of Babylon. And Daniel esteems himself as God is with him. He becomes this, this godly example, even in a foreign nation. And, and he interprets dreams, and he becomes this wise counselor to the highest levels of government in that day. And God speaks through him concerning future events that would come. Now, most scholars are convinced that what Daniel prophesied there took place like 160 years before Jesus was born, uh, 167 BC. I'll, I'll explain that in just a moment. But we would say, if that is so, uh, why was Jesus speaking about it as a future event here? So let me just recount the history for you a little bit. So the, the Jewish people went off into captivity beginning in 605 BC. Um, the Babylonian kingdom was conquered by the Persians, and then the uh, peoples were invited to go back to their homelands. And so uh, in uh, 538, uh, Ezra, book of Ezra, Old Testament, Ezra began rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Then almost 100 years later, 444 BC, Nehemiah came with a group of, of exiles that returned to Jerusalem, and they began rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. But these were extremely difficult years, and armies were constantly threatening, and, and peoples were saber-rattling. Uh, and it happened several times, but, but most significantly, 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Greek ruler over the nation of Syria, or the area of Syria, uh, he came and, and finally conquered Jerusalem, tore down the temple, and, and, and marched into the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar. Like, oh my goodness, unbelievably contemptible, highly offensive, and seemingly the fulfillment of uh, of this prophecy of Daniel's. Uh, he set up a statue to, uh, to Zeus uh, in the Holy of Holies in, in there. It's the abomination of desolation, a sacrilegious object or event that causes mis misery and devastation. It was terrible. It was a terrible time of suffering for the people of Israel. But here in Matthew 24, Jesus seems to be saying, and it's gonna happen again. It's gonna happen again. In fact, he says to his disciples, it's gonna happen in your lifetime. And we'll get to that next week. It's a reference to verse 36. And it did happen. 40 years after Jesus spoke these words, um, in, in what came to be known as the Jewish War, there was an uprising um, uh, 60, starting 68 AD, 
uh, where, where the Jewish people tried to throw off the, Ro- the, the, the Roman army, throw off the Roman control of their land, and it was a devastating, horrible experience. Um, AD 70, uh, the Romans under uh, General Titus uh, broke, in, broke through the walls, tore down the temple. Uh, if you and I get a chance, I would love to, to take you to Israel someday. Um, and, and the paving stones are caved in where these massive wall stones came crashing down. It's a stunning thing. And in that day, under, under the Roman destruction of the temple, uh, anything that could burn was being burned. And into this, through the eastern gate, came the Roman army with uh, their standard into the temple area. And once again, sacrifices to their foreign gods were offered on the Jewish altar, and it was this abomination of desolation. It was horrific. Um, Jesus saw this coming. His disciples uh, were concerned about what's gonna come. Jesus told them what would come. In fact, he gives them instructions here. Verse 16, Matthew 24. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it would be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be, a, there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began. And it will never be so great again. Now, now it happened. And mercifully, the followers of Jesus were listening to Jesus' words and they did flee. AD 35, they saw the signs, sorry, 35 years after the the telling of Jesus, about AD 68, they saw the signs of what was happening and the threat of the Roman army around them. They remembered the words of Jesus recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They saw the signs of Jerusalem's end and they evacuated the city. Uh, The vast majority of the Christian church left the city for Syria and a desert city called Pella. And there they were spared. Uh, Most of the followers of Jesus spared from this great tribulation in A.D. 70. Jesus had warned them it would be horrific, and it was. The the Jewish historian Josephus tells us about this. Dr. Frederick Bruner summarizes it this way. 1.1 million people were killed. Uh, There was forced cannibalization in the city before the end. Multitudes carried away as prisoners of war, and it was the end of religious Israel's centered life in Jerusalem. It was devastating. Dr. Don Carson, he comments here, specifically on those words that Jesus said, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, uh, never to be equaled again. Carson writes, there have been greater numbers of deaths, six million in the Nazi death camps, mostly Jews, an estimated 20 million under Stalin. But never so high a percentage of a great city's population so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. It happened, 167 BC under Antiochus Epiphanes, again 70 AD under General Titus. But we ask as we read, like is that it? Or or was Jesus talking about something more? Are we to expect more great tribulations? And we're gonna have to set that question aside until next Sunday. Because I need to press on, because Jesus has more that he communicates to us here firstly. So what is Jesus telling us about the end of the world? What are the signs of the end? 
And he moves through talking about this period of great tribulation to talking about the great deception. Let me read it for us, verse 22. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. And at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So we've been expanding our vocabulary a little bit here this morning. Uh, Abomination, (laughs) desolation. Uh, Here we need to add the elect to our vocabulary. It's, It's simply a word that refers to all true believers. Genuine followers of Jesus. So in the Old Testament... It referred to Israel as God's chosen people. The first people of God were God's elect. In the New Testament, it refers to the church, the new people of God. And the word puts an emphasis on God's role in choosing us, uh, his, his enabling us to say yes to his invitation to love and serve him. Um, the word elect has an emphasis on the corporate aspect as opposed to the individual. It's us as the church more than it is you or me as individuals, the elect. But once again here, Jesus is concerned that that even the elect not be deceived. Now he's begun to articulate this concern back at the beginning of the sermon. So so the sermon of the end of the world, the Olivet Discourse, back in verse four, he says, watch out that no one deceives you. And he talks about false teachers and prophets. And then verse 24, he comes and he gives the same kind of warning again. False messiahs, false prophets. This is something that in the text we call an inclusio. It's like a bookend. It starts this way, it ends that way. It indicates that everything in between is somehow connected. Even this sort of zooming in on, on, on Jerusalem and what's happening in this one period of history, but it's all connected to the whole of what he's talking about here. Again, a little more next week. But in particular, don't miss this. Jesus says these false prophets and false teachers are gonna be convincing. They're gonna be impressive They're going to be very spiritual. In fact, they're going to be super spiritual. It's part of what makes them impressive, spectacular, amazing. Jesus' words, performing great signs and wonders. And most of us say, hang on a minute here. Didn't Jesus perform great signs and wonders? And the answer, of course, is yes, he did. It was was part of what helped us recognize him as Messiah. And, and, And then you might go on and say, well, hold on again. Didn't Jesus say that signs and wonders would accompany the proclamation of the gospel to help people see it and hear it? Once again, we say, yes, yes, that was promised and it has happened and it does happen. So then we ask a third question and say, well, how is it that signs and wonders here are a mark of false prophets? Well, the answer is that Satan is a very convincing imitator. And Jesus is warning us here to be wary. So let's talk about signs and wonders just for a minute. Signs, right, it's a a symbol or an indication uh, to take note, pay attention, right? Think of a road sign, take note, pay attention. The Jewish leaders had been asking Jesus for a sign, to give them a sign that would prove that he was a Messiah. The bizarre thing is they had been all along. Uh, He was the Messiah, the signs were there, and they missed them. 
Finally, they keep pushing Jesus and he says, okay, I will give you the sign of the prophet Jonah. He's referring to the Old Testament prophet Jonah. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 12. As Jonah was in the belly of a great fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the grave three days and three nights. And they didn't recognize that one either. Okay, so in this we're recognizing one of the problems with signs is that they're easily missed. Right? They're imperfect. They are an inadequate verification of authenticity. You want a certificate of authenticity? Uh, Wonderful. Um, Anybody can print one off, right? Like it's a good starting point. It's a good starting point, but, but it's not the definitive verification of authenticity. Signs, wonders, okay? Uh, genuine miracles is what Jesus is describing here. Healings, uh, words of knowledge, uh, prophetic declarations that, that come true, that are, that are accurate. But the problem will be that they have come from someone who is false. These are false prophets, false teachers. Their, their lives do not match their claims. They are false in, in, in every way. And, if you've been with us for a little while, then this is sounding familiar because Paul, in his letter to the church in Philippi, issued a similar kind of warning to the church there. He said they're lovers of money, uh, they're looking out for their own interests, not the interests of others. Paul, in, in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, says, Follow my example, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And, and so we come to the conclusion to say, Look, stop following someone who's not following Jesus. Or if they stop following Jesus, stop following them. Jesus, Jesus actually said, he said, you will know them by their fruit. Matthew 7, 15. Uh, Paul invited us, invites us to examine the fruit of the Spirit. And, and in this case, we would say, is the fruit of the Spirit evident in the lives of, of, of any teachers that we would turn to and attempt to, to listen to? Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22. Love, joy, peace, Right? Patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Uh, we, we can go to Philippians and, and the, the words that Paul used there. He says, look, examine the, their lives. Are, are they thinking about what is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, everything that's admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy? Is the peace of God guarding their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus? So these are some of the tests we're to be examining the lives of those that we are listening to and, and assessing does their walk match their talk? And if it does not, stop following them. Now Jesus has told us that the end will be marked by signs. They're imperfect, we don't always recognize them clearly, but, but this period of tribulation being a sign. Uh, throughout this end period, imposters coming and going, this great deception is being warned about, but then the words of encouragement come, he says, expect the great revelation. Verse 25, see, I have told you ahead of time, Jesus' words here, he's speaking, so if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Now this has happened multiple times over the past 2,000 years. Where someone raised, comes, so um, the most, most recent one that I'm aware of, most, the clearest, um, the, 
the Christian cult known as the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, claimed that Jesus returned in 1914. <laughs> right? Jesus has made it clear that everyone's going to see him. It's going to be utterly clear. There's no secret second return of Jesus. Everyone's going to know that Jesus has come, and we don't need to fall for a deception like that. Now, this might be all kind of helpful information, but what do we do with it? How, do we, how, do we, how does this impact how we are living today and tomorrow? So here are some sort of three recommendations to you that I would make from this text and then I'm gonna go outside this text to another biblical text in just a moment. So the first one is the same point we, we observed last week because this is all tied together, right? And that is this, watch out. Be on your guard that no one deceives you. And we talked about this last week. Um, here we add the idea that we are to be assessing the character of the teachers, whoever it is that we would listen to. Last week we talked about the idea, if we, we need to immerse ourselves in, scripture, in the scriptures. We need to know the word of God. We need to con- continually seek the filling of the Holy Spirit and enable him to be our teacher. And we need to be surrounding ourselves with other followers of Jesus. This is not a solo journey. We need to be in the family of God. We need to be in community journeying with others. Now, if in all of this, you're saying, man, this is new to me, I feel overwhelmed, I, I'm not sure I've got terms of reference, or I'm, I'm still even kicking the tires of this faith thing, let me admonish you to join us in our Alpha course. Just after Easter, Thursday, April 8th, it's going to be an online experience, and we're going we're gonna to address things like, who is Jesus, and why did he die, and, and, and better understand, or get a starting point for understanding the scriptures, and we're going to talk about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're going to talk about, we're going to experience, actually, examining scripture together, and, and how, do we, how, do we, how do we do this as followers of Jesus? It, it, maybe you need to attend. Uh, Who are you praying for? If you're a follower of Jesus already, who are you praying for? And maybe you need to attend this with them. One of the amazing things about an online version of this is is that it's not location dependent. Like you could invite family anywhere in this nation to join you. I did yesterday. Uh, Maybe uh, maybe they're around the world. And this is a unique window of opportunity. You can say, "Would would you consider this with me? This who is Jesus question with me. It's a beginning point of, of watching out, being on our guard against deception. We want, uh, the second kind of practical word of encouragement would be this. Don't be surprised by difficulty and suffering. Okay, Jesus has warned us about it. Sometimes I get concerned that Christians, uh, our evaluation process is the evaluation process of the world and that uh, success equals blessing, therefore it's good. And difficulty or trials is not good and is a sign that something is terribly wrong. Now, it could be, but it's certainly not automatically. I mean, we have to recognize, uh, like make no mistake, that we do have an adversary, the devil, who is working against God's purposes. And Jesus told us about him. He said he's a liar and he's a father of lies, John 8, 44. But here Jesus is saying, that my followers living in a sin-fallen world can expect difficulty. It was just over a year ago when uh, one of the international workers that we support in North Africa, he was coming home one morning from his early morning jog, and 
and he collapsed and died on the front steps of their apartment building. Um, oh my goodness, somebody's out there serving Jesus. In a, what happened there? And, I mean, Darcy was in his 40s, a fit, um, left his wife and his four kids, left the North Africa team grieving. We grieve with them from afar. Um, and, and Jesus is saying, yeah, this is a broken world, and things don't necessarily unfold in the way that, that we think they should be unfolding. And Jesus is calling his followers here to steal ourselves and readiness for this, to, 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 to approach the, 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 the spiritual battle as soldiers, fit and ready to serve God, but recognize that it is difficult. So, so don't be surprised by difficulty uh, and suffering, but then, perhaps most important, continually renew your confidence in the victory of Jesus. There are so many places in the scriptures that I could go uh, to, to illustrate this, but let me try this one. Colossians chapter one, verse 15. Listen to what Paul writes to the church in the city of Colossae. The son, referring to Jesus, so we're renewing uh, our confidence in Jesus' victory. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that, in, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. This is the one who's been speaking to us from Matthew 24. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And we're invited to, to renew our confidence in this one who has secured the victory in the midst of the tribulation and secured you and I in the midst of the risk of deception. And we come to the Lord's table together this morning, which calls us to regularly return to this place, the place where Jesus won the victory that we are invited into in him. Jesus is inviting you to walk with him through whatever tribulation you might be facing. And he's inviting you as you walk with him to look to him so, so that I'll, not, I'll, not, I'll avoid deception when it's present. And Jesus is inviting you to trust in him so that on the day of his revelation, when he comes, it'll be a great day of joy and celebration for each and every one of us. So I'm gonna invite the worship team to come. I'm gonna invite you to pray with me before we observe the bread and the cup together. Just bow your heads with me, if you would, please. Maybe you need to pray this along with me, just in your heart. Lord Jesus, thank you for humbling yourself to death on a cross in order that through your blood shed on the cross, 
we might be reconciled to the Father. Will you forgive me my sin? Maybe you need to fill in some blank here. And will you help me to forgive those who have sinned against me or us? Lord Jesus, would you lead us away from temptation, or if necessary, through temptation, victoriously, and deliver us from evil? For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.